This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Hilary Harper with you. Higher education is more in demand now than at any point in Australia's history, but it's also in big trouble. International student intakes plummeted during COVID, but staff casualisation, mass layoffs and politicised cuts to research programs have been problems for years. The new Labor government says it wants to change that with a universities accord, a partnership between unis, students, businesses, parents and the major political parties to lay out the future of the sector. We'll find out what that might look like on Life Matters today on RN. Let's dream big for a moment. When you think of the role of higher education in Australia, what do you expect from our universities in particular? TAFE warrants a whole story all to itself, and we'll cover that soon on Life Matters. But today, what reforms would you like to see in the university sector? You can head over to our Facebook page, ABC Radio National, and look for the Life Matters post because there's quite a few ideas being uh, prosecuted there. Lots and lots of uh, reply threads as people engage with that topic. And I'm joined today by Raywin Connell, who's a sociologist, Professor Emerita at the University of Sydney, and author of a book called The Good University, What Universities Actually Do and Why It's Time for Radical Change. Raywin, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you, Hilary. I'm glad to be with you. We're glad to have you. And also with us today, Gavin Moody, who's an adjunct professor in the Department of Leadership, Higher and Adult Education at the University of Toronto. He's worked for 35 years in administration and policy at Australian universities. Gavin, great to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Hilary. And uh, hello, Rayleigh. I imagine that you're very familiar with each other's work. Gavin, I'll start with you. What might the Australian Universities Accord look like if and when it gets off the ground? Hard to know because the first draft was developed by Tanya Plibersek when she was Shadow Minister for Education. And, of course, she's um, been appointed to the very important role as Minister for uh, environment and water, and we don't yet have an idea of what the incoming minister, Jason Clare, has in mind for us. And I wonder too if Jason Clare will have to work in tandem with Brendan O'Connor, the new skills and training minister. Do you think that that will be necessary to to get that context for what universities do? I think that would be a very good idea and I and some of my colleagues are very disappointed that yet again vocational education is separated from higher education. We think that there's much to be gained by the two sectors working together both on campus but also in Canberra. And Gavin, I mean, given that we don't know very much about what final form that accord might take, but that the uh, Tanya Plibersek, when she announced it, said, you know, there were big questions that it might address about how higher education is structured and funded so that it can offer affordable, high quality teaching and produce world class research. That's a lot of things to encompass in one document. She also said she wanted it to end some of the political bickering that's plagued higher education policy. Is one accord able to do all those things? Uh, excellent question. And I, I think obviously not. I think the first issue that will confront us is 
what gets onto the Accords agenda and what gets dealt with in the short and medium term and what gets pushed back. And that sorting or prioritising is in itself an issue which I think the uh, academics, students, public, as well as uh, university administrations will have a considerable interest in. And Gavin, in your view, what reforms are most needed in higher education? Oh, <laughs> very, <laughs> we've got some time. <laughs> a very big question. I personally would examine the relationship between higher education and vocational education. Um, it's very much separated in Australia and indeed in the UK, but I've been working for the last eight years in Canada and I look over the border to the USA where there's a much closer working relationship between vocational, or what they call college education, and higher education. And that close working relationship works to the benefit very much of the institutions, of students, and I think of the funding system, because we were able to fund considerable expansion of diplomas and degrees in our college at much less cost and much more applied than universities often feel comfortable with. And I think we'll need to dedicate some time to talk about funding in a moment. But uh, Raywin Connell, uh, I wanted to go to you and, and talk about how we got here to the point where lots of critics are saying this system is in crisis. What, what is your view on how critical things are right now? Um, I think we're right to, to talk about a crisis in, in higher education, <clears throat> part of which actually is the breaking of the connection with TAFE, uh, with technical education, um, which used to exist. I mean, Australia used to have a, a robust uh, TAFE, public TAFE system. That was dismantled, basically, over a period of 30 years or so, um, <clears throat> at the time when the university sector uh, grew in a new way uh, since the 1980s. Um, in, in ways that have now um, turned out to produce really important problems. Uh, so there was a shift, uh, initially quite small, uh, to funding higher education again uh, by means of fees as well as the tax system. And that fee funding has gradually grown um, and introduced, of course, the uh, differential fees for overseas students, which eventually became a very important part of the funding of universities in Australia. Now, that shift in itself um, has produced effects on the way universities work uh, because it helped to propel universities from being uh, more or less co-op operating parts of a public education system to being much more like competitive firms which are, you know, uh, jostling uh, against each other 
for larger shares of this pool of fee-based private money. Um, and that has ramified <coughs> effects through the universities, uh, bringing in a different pattern of management, different, more corporate, uh, competitive style of management, uh, producing uh, incentives to, to push wages down in the way corporate management uh, normally does, uh, to casualise the workforce, to outsource many of the kinds of work that used to be done by university staff themselves. Um, so we've had, we've, we now have different organisations that actually feel and work in significant ways differently um, from the way they did when, when I began in the sector uh, back in the 70s. Um, and um, that has led, you know, to um, uh, what I think increasing unsustainability uh, of the organisations and the workforce. And Ray, uh, when you we're... argue that that, that uh, f phenomenon we've seen where, you know, uh, vice chancellors' salaries go up and up and up to the million dollar yeah. mark, uh, but the staff are casualised, has led to a kind of breaking of the bonds, the traditional uh, relationships and assumptions, shared assumptions that perhaps used to go into stakeholders in universities. What effect has that had on the way that students approach higher education and experience higher education? Well, um, a lot of what goes on in universities is not, not very visible outside. Um, and students are increasingly positioned in, in this system as consumers, you know, as, as the clients who buy a service from a, a firm, rather than as citizens who have a kind of right to the best education that, that is available to them. Um, so that's one thing that has changed the, the student experience, I think. The, the, the research that's been done around student satisfaction, um, much of it is not actually, you know, very intensive research, but the, the research that has sort of got, you know, really close to, to uh, the students themselves is not producing a very complementary picture of contemporary universities. There's a lot of, um, you know, lack of engagement, um, disappointment about the nature of our education experience and so forth. A lot of that around, and, and that worries me, uh, when it's combined with uh, disillusion and indeed rising anger uh, among the teaching workforce, and, of course, separation uh, of much of the non-teaching workforce with the outsourcing of services. So you don't get the kind of cooperation and, um, and fellow feeling um, that you want in, in any educational setting. Um, we're speaking with Raywin Connell, sociologist, professor emerita at the University of Sydney and author of The Good University, and Gavin Moody, who's an adjunct professor in the Department of Leadership, Higher and Adult Education at the University of Toronto. He used to be at RMIT in Melbourne, in, uh, Melbourne and has worked in Australian universities for many, many years. And I'm interested in your thoughts to do because, because public universities deal with about 82% of our higher education uh, load. A lot of 
people go to universities in Australia these days, especially public yes. universities? What do we want them to look like? What do we think they should do? You can head to the ABC Radio National Facebook page and tell us your thoughts there. Gavin, you too have argued for this uh, a kind of reinstatement of the common ground that used to exist in uh, stakeholders at university, and that's what the university's accord, I think, is aiming to do. How much common ground is there at the moment? I mean, governments and students or businesses and universities, is there a way for them to move forward in tandem? Quite so. And uh, Raylene's exactly right in the uh, discord that she reports. Further, students, I think, unfortunately, see universities very often as maximising profits, in inverted commas, and that's a dreadful um, perception for them to have of their own institutions. There's also, I think, a disenchantment with the relationship between education and work. The mythical conveyor belt that went from a university to a good job has broken down for, for, for various reasons. This is not just because of the ideological shifts in our politics and in our public policy, although that is important, but also, I suggest, because of the very considerable increase in size of the sector and the proportion of young people going on to university. And this has uh, changed the structure of institutions and its relationship with society. So I think the grounds for a new concordat, a new accord, a new shared understanding of our common purpose and ways of proceeding have to come from a new way of handling the greatly increased participation. I think we need new um, ways of organising our institutions, ways of setting the relationship between institutions and government, and new ways of establishing the relationship between education and work. I think we need a new structure for all of those things and the opportunity for building common understanding, common ground, will come from developing those new structures collaboratively rather than by imposition of one on the other. And Gavin, you've argued that there is no crisis in Australian higher education financing. Could you explain why you have that view, given that, you know, we've seen this reliance exposed on international student fees? I think there was a three or four billion dollar shortfall after COVID and the long term debt burden placed on young people by hex debts. You feel that it's not an issue. Is that right? Ah, it's a very important issue. But um, remember... I look over the border to the USA, where there really is a crisis, and I look across the Atlantic to the UK, where the um, debt that uh, students bear is uh, much, much higher than in Australia. They really are facing crises that need um, 
resolution very quickly. In contrast, uh, Australia has, I think, got three to five years to establish a new uh, financial framework for its higher education. Um, and I think we should take the time to develop something which will last for the next 20 years. There are immediate problems to be attended to, and no doubt the minister will start on those. There are um, dreadful anomalies in the policy that the uh, previous government introduced, which should be attended to. But I hope that we can lay uh, um, the foundations for a longer-term restructuring of finance and governance, and for that we need a bit of time to do. Yes, indeed. Time is going to be of the essence. Uh, interesting comments coming through on our Facebook page. Carlos asks, why does a glorified book club, i.e. an arts course, cost $27,000 a year when a paperback book costs $30? Where does the money actually go? And other people saying, uh, Desiree says, university should be available to all and not reserved for the elite ever. All people should be supported and encouraged to pursue higher education, as in countries like Russia, Poland, Italy and Germany. There are many reasons for encouraging the growth of a highly educated population. Now, Raywin Connell, you've argued to, that we should shed the fee-based system entirely. Wouldn't that cost us billions of dollars in coming years? I mean, how could that be sustainable? Right. Um, we do. Uh, Australia is a rich country. We do have the resources to have a good post-secondary education experience for the whole population. No question about that. The question is how uh, that's done, what sector of the economy supports it. And the, the, the stuff about how much higher education costs uh, being unreasonable and so forth is about a particular way of thinking uh, what you know? What part of the economy, whether the tax system, private finance, family finance, and so forth, actually stumps up? Um, so it, it's it's a, a, an argument that needs rethinking, reshaping. I think, but I also want to say that the the question of finance and and governance is is part of. The, the issue, uh, but it's not, you know, uh, anything like the whole of what we have to do in, in regenerating post-school education and, and the university sector in particular. We need, for instance, a whole lot more industrial democracy in higher education, participatory ways of running these organisations, which we know how to do. It's not rocket science. But the shift has been very strongly towards more hierarchy, more control from the top in universities, and that's not good for, for education or research. Um, and we need, you know, we need to think also about the cultural basis and the cultural purposes of, of, of universities, which are not just preparation for jobs, important as that is, but also about generating the, you know, the capacities uh, to handle climate change, to handle multicultural existence, to deal with racism, to deal with changing shape of the world. 
Um, those are things that uh, should be you know, causing us to rethink the, the shape of, of curriculum, uh, the nature of teaching, the very purposes uh, for which people go to, to university. That's a really big question, though, isn't it, Rowan Connell? Surely. Because there was so much discussion about the Coalition's job-ready approach to higher education. Uh, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I mean, is that not a, a reasonable lens through which to view higher education? We're going to need a lot of teachers, nurses. We're going to need particular skills. We surely do, and we need them well-educated. Um, that's the problem, I guess, with seeing the um, you know, university education only through the lens of the jobs people are walking into. You forget about the background that they need to do those jobs properly. It's not just vocational training, um, but higher education in, the, in a fuller sense. And then, of course, there are all the purposes beyond uh, preparation for the economy, uh, which universities are intended to produce, such as the advancement of knowledge, uh, for which we need, you know, the capacity to invent, innovate, rethink, criticise. And we need that across the board, not just in an arts degree, but in a medical degree, in an engineering degree too. Uh, you know, if we have the kind of community that we want for the future, um, so I think the, um, my, my objection to the, uh, the Job Ready uh, graduates package was not just uh, the particular uh, irrational uh, choices that it made of where to put the money, um, but the very idea that that was what, uh, that was all uh, that a university system should focus on. I mean, that really horrified many people. And I think it, it um, you know, probably went down well with groups of employers who could see, you know, a better flow of workforce into their sector. But it didn't serve the wider purposes of, of education, the wider needs of the community very well at all. Well, just to finish up with, I want to ask you, Gavin Moody, why is higher education not a bigger vote winner in Australia? It used to be during the period when higher education was expanding in the 60s and through to the 90s, when the middle class was newly uh, expanding into higher education. It was a very important uh, electoral issue. And if um, young people couldn't get into university, that was a serious problem for the government. Thus far, universities have expanded enough so that um, a reasonable proportion, around half of young people can proceed. But as expectations and ambitions increase, and as the number of young people increase, so the demand on entry to university will increase. And that, I think, will uh, change the political importance of higher education and the opportunities that are made available to young people. 
Yep, interesting times yep. ahead, I think, in a Confucian sense. Thank you both so much for joining us today on Life Matters to chat about higher education. Gavin Moody is an adjunct professor in the Department of Leadership, Higher and Adult Education at the University of Toronto right now, but after 35 years of being involved in advising on Australian universities. And Raywin Connell's a sociologist, professor emerita at the University of Sydney and author of The Good University, What Universities Actually Do and Why It's Time for Radical Change. And I'll leave you with a thought by Thomas from our Facebook page. He says, a bigger chunk of universities should be subsidised by the businesses that require degrees from who they hire. Interesting perspective. One of many on our Facebook page here at ABC Radio National. Some people crave comfort and familiarity in their later years and others get itchy feet. Up next on Life Matters, we'll hear about a huge life change that led to a fascinating documentary project in Lightning Ridge. This is RN. vision do you have for your retirement? Caravanning, hitting the workshop, getting the garden into shape finally, or buying land in the outback and a shed with no electricity or hot water and taking up opal mining. Lucy DePaolo's mother decided to move to Lightning Ridge in New South Wales and hunt black opal. And Lucy's been documenting the life and people of the town, which seems to have something about it. Opal. You go downstairs and you dig it with a jackhammer and that's basically it. You live in little tin sheds and, yeah, you go to work every day and I sort of made the decision to come up here. It took me about a month and then once I got here, that was it. I was just never leaving, never leaving. I love the place. That's Brett, just one of the voices from Lucy DiPaolo's ongoing documentary project, Fragile Black Heart. Lucy's a photojournalist and an author as well. Lucy, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you. Great to have you here. Now, some people's mums take up bridge or volunteering or something when they retire. What do you think you led your mum to to make this big move? Uh, I would say uh, after mum divorced my dad, um, she just wanted to try something different. So she joined the Waverley Gem Club and she got to know a little bit about uh, stones and um, that's what lured her to Lightning Ridge, which was the Black Opal. But this was a bit of a diversion for her, wasn't it? 27 years of marriage, that ended, and then suddenly, was it a bit of a shock to you? It was. Um, I didn't I didn't realise she had an adventurous streak. So we're, we're a bit in shock when she um, uh, grabbed her two dogs and just drove 14 hours away from where she was living uh, to, to a very small remote mining town uh, just to um, seek an adventure. And did it work? Did she immediately strike it rich, dream come true? Uh, Not really. Um, Unfortunately, whoever goes up there and wants to search for opal, you can't really do it on your own. Uh, So you've just got to try and find some partners. And um, unfortunately, there are loan sharks there ready to pounce. So that's the first initiation when you go to Lightning Ridge. Uh, is um, just beware who, which partners you find. Oh, no. So, so. Yeah, that's okay. It's just how it is. Great. Yeah. So her first experience was getting ripped off. Yep. Great. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> well, Lucy, tell us a little bit more about Lightning Ridge because it's a pretty interesting town just physically to look at. What were your first impressions when your mum moved up there and you visited her? 
Yeah, well, uh, what happened was uh, she bought herself a $2,000 campsite and she invited me up and I thought, oh, I'll go have a look, you know, but I didn't realise it was that bad. Like, um, there was no electricity, no gas. It was just made out of secondhand incorrugated iron sheets, just a shed and a a secondhand used caravan. And um, it was so cold at night, like the the semi-desert winds would go through and we would go to bed at seven o'clock at night. And I was thinking, what is she doing here? Why? You know, that was my impression. When you Were you worried about her? I mean, here's a woman in her yes. mid-50s heading off to this difficult place. Yes, I was worried about her. Uh, I would call her every night at 7 o'clock to make sure she was okay. Uh, but um, I think it was um, she went there for as an escape. Like she uh, uh, definitely because of the weather, well, the winter weather, how it is today, it's freezing. <laughs> So um, she would go there for winter and, um, and the weather's quite nice uh, during the day. Um, so she would um, start slowly uh, fixing the campsite and start um, meeting people as well. So she would um, uh, like go out and uh, mingle and try and work out where she could go in, in order to search for opal. And, uh, I mean, it sounds like it grows on people too, despite the, the kind of harshness of the landscape. It's it's dusty. A lot of the houses look run down. There's no airs and graces there. But it kind of grew on you, didn't it, Lucy DiPaolo? Yes, it did. Uh, I still have my campsite, which is really cool. But unfortunately, the caravan's gone because through the lockdown, someone stole it. So oh. that's a bit of a bummer. Yeah, so um, I, I would say it's not the opal that drives me there. It's more the people. So I've, I've become friends with um, uh, really good, uh, good-hearted people. So I would go up there and I would um, see them and also promote my book, Fragile Black Heart. And also just um, meeting other characters and interviewing them and, and still going on with the fragile black heart because I just find it fascinating. Well, and some of the people and and characters that you document are fascinating and you say that they're not stereotypes of miners. Yeah, miners usually wear clothes, don't they? Yeah, there's one character I absolutely love. Uh, He's there for two reasons, which is the chase of opal and the lifestyle. So uh, a lot of people go up there because of the freedom that they have in in Lightning Ridge. So, yeah, he he loves it. It's it's a way of life. He he finds clothes a hazard and um, he's happy living there and um, searching for opal. And I think he's still uh, looking for opal. He's in his 80s now. So they, they don't really retire up there. <laughs> no. And it was interesting too to me to see that it wasn't just older people who've got a bit of spare time and wanted to retire. There's quite a few younger people up there too. Yeah, definitely. It's the lure of Opal. It's that uh, trying to find, uh, you know, the gamble of um, being rich. So they're up there um, in search of Opal as well. And it sounded like, just listening to Brett from the little grab we played at the start, he really liked the lifestyle, you know. It's it's out in nature in, in a sense, though he's underground a lot of the time, and something about the pace of life there really appealed to him. Yeah, he was saying that um, it was just very slow, the days, not, not long, but slow. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, he was there definitely for the opal and the lifestyle. Uh, I think he had um, a tough life in mainstream society and needed to move somewhere a bit slower. And uh, he, uh, yeah, he loved it there. He, he, he found, I think it was, um, oh, I hate the word, therapeutic. What's that word? Yeah, yeah. Um, it helped him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Lucy. Therapeutic. Yeah. Lucy DiPaolo is who you're hearing from today on Life Matters. She's a photojournalist and author and creator of the Fragile Black Heart Project, which is a book. It's a, a documentary film. It's a, a social media uh, account and document. And Lucy, I'm sorry that your mum's story ended in illness. She developed cancer after yeah. about seven years and had to move back home where she passed away. How, how mm. was it for her having to come back home and leave that life in Lightning Ridge? Yeah, well, it was difficult because uh, uh, she started making friends and, you know, uh, learning how to line dance and um, getting right into the community and um, kind of found another partner to open mine as well. And so she had to leave all that to come back home. But, I mean, she came home for family. So, you know, we were there for her to support her. It took six months for her to pass away, which is a bit of a shock. So this book is a legacy for her. I've um, dedicated it to my mother and um, I just went up there to find out simply why was she attracted to the town? Was it the opal or lifestyle? So I I interviewed... um, uh, people there so what I did I didn't even know anyone I just hired a car I bipped the horn and whoever came out I would ask them simply <laughs> why are you here is it the lifestyle or the opal and they would tell me their story so they were completely happy to just come out to a stranger who'd beeped their horn in their front yard yeah well I was surprised because um a lot of uh, a few of the characters in the books are, are quite uh, they're hermits they they, they rarely socialize so um, a lot of the locals in Lightly Ridge are saying, how did you get this guy? We rarely see him. And I said, I don't know. I just went out and I just asked that question. And I guess um, they, they, they felt a trust within me and they told me their story. And Lucy, your mum left you her plot up there in Lightning Ridge when yes. she died. How do you feel about that? Oh, it's very sentimental. It doesn't cost a lot. I mean, she bought it for $2,000, but um, just a lot of memories for me. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to sell it. Or maybe one day I'll go up there and, and fix it and, um, and I don't know, just fix it and um, make it a little, a little bit more li- livable. And do you think you'll catch the mining bug yourself? Have you had a go? Maybe. You never know. <laughs> I've just got to find people that I can trust. So if, I, if I'm if i going to do mining, I have to find partners that I can trust. And, um, yeah, why not? Yeah. Well, I understand that there's you, know, you don't have to necessarily commit to the full-on digging a great big hole and mining. You can try something called specking. What's that? Yeah, well, uh, it's in Grawen. So what they uh, the opal miners dump their truckload of dirt. And then you go there and you look through the dirt, the mountains of dirt, and you never know, you might find a little opal that they've um, forgotten to find, they've discarded. So anyone can do that. But not many people can make a living from it, can they? 
Now, only 1% make a really good living. Uh, it is it is difficult. I mean, um, it's not very glamorous, to be honest. So you've just got to be very, very determined in order to uh, look for Opal. And Lucy... Yeah, some people strike it very quick. Some people don't, so... Oh, you'd be hoping you'd be one of the, the people who immediately... Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> if I do strike it, I'll buy a place in Early Beach. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, you had to stop going up there during COVID and you've just returned from yeah. your first trip since then. What was that like to go back again? It was good to see um, my close friends, but it was a disappointment um, not seeing my caravan there. I kind of bought some paintbrushes <laughs> and some paint to um, paint inside and uh, it was a bit of a shock seeing that that not there. Um, but it was, um, you know, on the other hand, you've got your mates that you haven't seen for two years that you want to um, have a beer with and um, have a chat. So it's just how it is. It's yeah. a small town. Do you think that caravan might turn up one day mysteriously? Yeah, they they think it's somewhere in Grawan. But I don't know. But uh, not only my caravans gone, other people's caravans. I think they're quite popular since COVID. So, yeah, a few of them have gone somewhere. But, um, yeah, it was just an old 80s Franklin caravan. So, yeah. yeah. Maybe it's being very, very useful for someone who knows. Yeah, exactly. I just hope it was someone homeless <laughs> yeah got a place exactly yeah well lucy thanks so much for giving us a little insight into life in lightning ridge and uh, some of the, the people who are there that's okay and i just wanted to say that i'm donating two dollars of every book sold uh to the youth affected by domestic violence and social uh, um social issues in rural areas in lightning ridge and surrounding yeah, because there are some issues in Lightning Ridge, as there are in many places yeah. around Australia. Lucy, yeah, there is. thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Lucy DiPaolo is a photojournalist and author. Her project's called Fragile Black Heart, and as you heard, $2 from the sale of each of the books from that project goes to supporting young uh, victims of domestic violence. You're listening to Life Matters, and from life underground to our subterranean feelings next, if you're a straight woman and you meet a man who treats you like you're precious and need protecting, is there a problem with that? Potentially, say psychologists. You're listening to RM. Opening doors, paying for dinner, pulling out your chair. Chivalrous behaviour is seen as a bit of a green flag in heterosexual dating. And as we've learnt more about the red flags, it's appealing to think that there's something wholesome going on out there. But researchers say there can be a dark side to these courteous acts, especially if women diverge from traditional gendered norms where those attitudes are present. So what does this mean for straight men and women? What's been your experience of the attitudes that we see as chivalrous or gallant if you date men? And if you are a man, do you feel pressure to act a certain way in those interactions, paying for meals, carrying parcels? Send me a text 0418 226 576. Beatrice Alba is a psychology lecturer at Deakin University in Victoria, and her research interests include sexism and evolutionary psychology. Beatrice, welcome to Life Matters. Good morning. Now, let's define our terms a bit first. When we talk about chivalry or gallantry, what do we mean, especially in a dating context? Yeah, so this old-fashioned idea of chivalry is men, particularly men, doing these kind and courteous acts for women 
that are intended to be um, not just kind and generous, but also helpful towards women. And um, that's the everyday term, I think, that we use uh, in our everyday lives. We call it chivalry. But in the research, we have labelled these sorts of actions as benevolent sexism. Now, why is that? Why, why are they potentially a bad thing? Well, I mean... In and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with kind acts. There's nothing wrong with someone doing something that's kind and courteous and generous to another person. But the idea behind benevolent sexism is that this is something that men need to do for women. And there's a reason why we expect men to do it for women. And underlying that are a range of beliefs and attitudes that women are somehow, you know, they're the fairer sex. They're a little bit are weaker than men and they're in need of this extra care and protection. So if, if taken as a whole, you can kind of see that there's this attitude that men and women are somehow different and men, women are weaker and they're less competent than men. I also saw the term morally pure tossed around in some of the research. There's this attitude that women are, are better in some way. What happens then if you as a woman don't fit that mould? That's right. So that's all part of this idea that women are these more kind of delicate and pure creatures. So, um, you know, in order to receive benevolently sexist uh, acts from men, you have to fulfil that role of being this pure angelic figure. And if you're not that pure angelic figure uh, in the eyes of people who have these attitudes, then there are some negative consequences. And we call that hostile sexism. So women who don't live up to these ideals, you know, the traditional feminine roles, they're met with hostile sexism. And Hostile sexism is this belief that women, uh, that uh, the women who don't fulfil those roles are trying to usurp men's power. So they're, you know, they're the feminists and the career women. So those kinds of women tend to get met with hostility. Those harpies, feminists and career women. <laughs> We're speaking with Beatrice Alba, who's a lecturer in psychology at Deakin University, where she researches sexism and evolutionary psychology. I mean, clearly hostile sexism is something that we would all like to avoid, but how does benevolent sexism affect women when it comes to how they feel during those interactions and how it affects them as agents in the world, Beatrice? So that's really interesting. I mean, you know, even benevolent sexism, it's its a kind of multifaceted thing. So there are those elements of it that uh, do appear quite positive. So those kind and courteous acts, um, they are perceived positively. And, you know, there's nothing um, clear to suggest that those things in and of themselves are inherently bad. But those kind acts, you know, the, the chivalrous gentlemanly acts, people who do those things, people who have those attitudes, they all tend to co correlate with a package of other things. And another part of benevolent sexism is what we call protective paternalism. So that's the more kind of condescending sort of stuff. So it's um, helping women in ways that they don't even really need to be helped. So it's doing things for them that aren't really necessary. Um, so, you know, and it can even be things like explaining something that a woman already understands. So good old mansplaining, you know, that's this assumption that women don't know something or that they can't do something. So that's kind of the, the negative side of it, the flip side of it, where you might get all the nice things, but it comes with some strings attached that there are these downsides as well. It was really interesting to read some of the research that uh, gave people competency tasks after they'd been exposed to a benevolent sexism interaction and they did worse. That's exactly right. So that's what the research shows. And this is experimental research. So they actually put people into a situation where, you know, some groups of women receive these benevolently sexist acts. So it could have been some comments that were a, a bit condescending uh, or something along those lines. And 
we did find that uh, their performance was impaired. So say on a cognitive task where they had to solve some problems, they showed uh, poorer performance. They also um, can show signs of cardiovascular threat. So, um, you know, things to do with like heart rate and uh, blood pressure and all those sorts of things. Um, so signs in the body that they're, they're experiencing some form of stress. We should talk about the flip side too. I mean, a lot of men might be genuinely doing these things because they've been raised to think of it as polite, especially in older generations. And quite a few women might expect or appreciate those acts, you know, opening doors and saying after you and whatnot. Does that necessarily mean that that relationship might turn sour? No, not necessarily. I mean, that that's totally understandable. I mean, we're all products of our culture and we've been raised with these particular norms and people who violate those norms aren't necessarily perceived positively either. You know, if a, if a man fails to do those things, then yes, he might be seen as being rude. So, yes, it is a little bit of a tricky situation for a man, you know, because nowadays, you know, we think more critically about these things and men are sort of seeing that we're starting to question it and they might think, well, what should I do? Don't know what to do. And I mean... You know, there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, having an open conversation about that. You know, like if a man offers something to a woman, like, you know, something more traditional, like paying on a date, for example, and, you know, people can have conversations about those things. And if a woman said, oh, no, I'm actually much more comfortable if we, say, share the expenses on a date or we take turns. And if a man can genuinely respect a woman's position on that and say, okay, great, I love that, that's fine, I'm happy to do it that way, then I see no problem and there's no problem with him making the offer. But if a man refuses to allow a woman to pay on a date, if he insists on sticking to this particular old-fashioned norm, then I would say that's a little bit more problematic, you know, being inflexible about these things. Well, it's also in the context that, you know, we're still moving towards equal pay for equal work for women. You could argue that because equal pay still hasn't been achieved, maybe it's fair if men do pay for more than women. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I see why people would uh, go down that road. Um, the only thing that I would be wary of that is, you know, what else are you signing up for if you, um, you know, if you make that agreement? So if you're going to let a man pay for a date, what's going to be expected in return? Getting some interesting text messages, Beatrice Alba, uh, on Life Matters today. Bruce in Canberra says, from a bloke's point of view, now generally accepted when going out that costs are shared unless the woman has no means. Other courtesies depend on what she's comfortable with, as, as, as you talked about, Beatrice. He says, I'm a chivalrous old bloke. That's lovely. I'm glad to, uh, to be getting your text, 0418 226 576. And uh, other people texting in too, David from Glen Iris, I'm going up to the snow next weekend and heavy snow is predicted. Snow chains will be required to be fitted to all vehicles. When my partner assumes that I'm going to get out in the snow and fit the chains as I always have, I will let her know that to avoid benevolent sexism, I'm going to insist that she fit the chains. Hmm, I don't think that will be appreciated. Well, I guess a lot of things are based on a context, aren't they, Beatrice? I mean, if you've never been taught how to fit snow chains and, in fact, you've been actively excluded from the kind of practical tasks that are seen as appropriate for your gender or for a particular gender, that's going to have an impact, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's a really great example. Um, and this is the sort of thing that benevolent sexism really drives is that women are prevented from doing these kinds of tasks. You know, those, those, um, those challenging physical tasks that are seen as more traditionally male, women are actually prevented from doing them. Um, and, you know, there's a little bit of a sort of... Um, 
you know, you're sort of robbing someone of a bit of independence and power when you raise them to not be able to do those tasks. And I think that's kind of what benevolent sexism is designed to do. It's actually designed to keep women um, out of those more uh, traditionally masculine roles. And then you see it playing out all through life. You know, as we're growing up, we haven't had the opportunity as women and girls to do those things. So as we get older, perhaps we, yeah, we just don't have the experience and the skills to do them. Is it robbing men of of the opportunity to exhibit qualities we've more often associated with women too? Definitely. That's another another downside of it is that, you know, uh, with benevolent sexism, women are assumed to be more in touch with their emotions. So it, uh, it takes that away from men as well, is that they can't be in touch with their emotions. Interesting text from Steve. He says, I'm a gay man, so I'm looking at this from a different view. Not every straight guy who shows a woman a kindness opens the car door, pulls out the chair for the date. It's politeness. You open the car door, you're wrong. You don't open the car door, you're wrong. Men can get a raw deal, give us a break. And that is a pretty reasonable point of view, isn't it, from a lot of guys who are saying, what is the right thing to do? Yeah, and again, I think it comes down to, you know, everyone taking the time to think about these things more critically. And it isn't just men, you know, it's women as well. And, um, you know, there are, of course, individual differences. So some women might want those things and some women won't. So that's why I think it's worth having some communication about what each party wants before you make any assumptions. Yes, indeed. Beatrice Alba is our guest. She's a lecturer in psychology at Deakin University. And Beatrice, I found it absolutely fascinating that there's this finding by researchers that women are attracted to benevolently sexist men, even these days when women earn their own money and and don't necessarily need that protection. What's going on there? Why is that such a stubborn kind of evolutionary feature of us? Yeah, so there is some research that shows that, um, that the men who perform those benevolently sexist acts are perceived as being warmer. But there's also research showing that the men who do those things are also be, are also perceived as being more willing to commit and invest in a woman. So in the early stages of a relationship, when, you know, um, in heterosexual couples, a woman, woman and man are getting together, if a man is extending those, you know, the extra effort to do those kind, courteous, generous things, then that kind of signals to the woman that this man is going to be a good partner. You know, he's showing me all that extra effort that shows that he's interested in his care and he'll be a good husband and he'll be a good father for the children as well. So that's quite important, you know, and that's, I think, one of the things that is really underlying women's desire for these actions and that's probably why they've been around for so long. Uh, On Steve's text too, is there much research about whether benevolent sexism can affect same-sex relationships too because we've been focusing mainly on heterosexual dating? Yeah, not really because, I mean, you know, the thing is this is something that really is central to heterosexual relationships. You know, it's something that's quite fundamental to heterosexual relationships and, you know, probably just has a lot less relevance to same-sex couples because it is specifically about, you know, the, the those traditional roles that people play in a heterosexual relationship where the male is the, the, um, the provider and the protector and the female is the mother and the caregiver. What a fascinating discussion. You should see our text message line, Beatrice. It's got some really interesting points of view on it. Look, thanks so much for your time today, having a a little glance at benevolent sexism. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Beatrice Alba, a psychology lecturer at Deakin University. I'll leave you with a couple of texts. Adam from Central Queensland, I hold the door open for women and men. I see it as just good manners. Why do I have to think I'm offensive to someone? And someone else says, ha, just try and get my wife to chop firewood. 
I love chopping firewood. Chopping firewood is great. I guess that's what you grew up with, isn't it? What your experience is. You're listening to Life Matters. Nat Tenchich has more of your feedback on our stories from today. Hi, Nat. Hello. Um, particularly that sexism story, that is uh, really getting a lot of attention. Um, Lulu reckons that sometimes women just need some attention and care and it's important to teach guys to be sensitive to that and not be scared of offering a bit of kindness because life is difficult enough. And that cuts both ways, doesn't it? Sometimes men need attention and care. Absolutely. I think we should just be a little bit nicer to each other in general and um, maybe not uh, put some any ulterior motives behind it. I suppose that's really just what Alba's trying to say. Um, and lots of thoughts coming in on our university story as well on Facebook. So many great pie-in-the-sky ideas for reforming this sector. Lindy says uh, she wants to start treating universities as places of learning and research, not businesses to make money. Free education for Australians from preschool to postdoc like it used to be. Ooh. Uh, ooh, I know, big, big thinking. Kate says at the barest minimum, a reduction in the cost of arts degrees after Scott Morrison's government doubled their cost. Uh, and on Labor's Universities Accord, Emma says, I love that this is a collaborative approach. Could we also find an effective way to demonstrate to people who don't agree with the free education point that it's a valuable investment and it's not frivolous spending of taxpayers' money because people seem to get upset with free handouts. But Janelle argued back um, we love people interacting on the Facebook page and said, while it's nice to think about free uni, it does come at a great cost. Where does it come to, you know, how do we pay for lecturers, admin staff, cleaners and the like? Denmark pay huge taxes, uh, but all education is free. So it's one way or the other. We can't have both. Uh, Thomas reckons businesses could pick up the bill uh, by subsidising the degrees of future hires. Uh, and Natalie says there should be more research, uh, integration between research and business because unis are churning out highly educated people who end up working in jobs not related to their study or interest because of oversupply. Um, and I want to leave you with uh, this thought from Graham who says he supports that government funded model. He wants to have an explosion of brain power. Ooh, that sounds like it could be messy but we did ask people to dream big so we got what we asked for. Love to hear more of your thoughts on the Facebook page. Thanks Nat. Thanks Hill. How do you know if you've got a food intolerance or you're just having a bad day. When our bodies are under stress, our gut can sometimes play up, and it has been a very stressful time for many people over the last few years. These days, we know more about all the things that can afflict our digestive tracts, whether that's FODMAPs or leaky guts or various gluten problems. Next time on Life Matters, we'll delve a little further into our gut health and find out how to make things a bit calmer down there. You're on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.